welcome to episode 334 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Ash Baker. Nathan Smith. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one and in part two. We'll be continuing our mass... See, I said it correctly this time. Mass Mickelson, the series, with uh, 2004's Pusher 2, with blood on my hands. Um... Which I honestly I love as like a subtitle. It sounds like a like Hong Kong heroic bloodshed kind of movie or a DMX album. It's pretty. It, it's pretty great. Um, real quickly, head over to cinematary.com. We got uh, we talked we did it a couple weeks ago, but we had our top ten of the year. We have uh, that top ten list on the site as well as everybody's top ten list who participated in our. In our aggregated list, um, you can see everybody's individual list, cinematary.com. And then we have a review. Our first review of the year is Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, uh, the 1957 Frank Tashlin film. Uh, Joseph Bullock reviewed it. So go check those out on the website. But let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. And uh, Ash, I'm going to kick it off with you. Okay. Um, this week I saw a movie that I wasn't really expecting to, um, well, I wasn't really expecting to watch a movie, period. Um, To be frank, um, what happened was um, Juliana and I were talking about how fucking nuts of a movie Happy Feet is. And, like, all these penguins, you know, they have their heart song, but this one penguin said, you know, what if I just went fucking crazy? And, um, so we were talking about that, and so we looked up who directed this movie. It's the man George Miller, who also directed all of the Mad Max movies, which is wild. So we're looking at his other filmography, and stumble across the movie The Witches of Eastwick, which is a movie starring Jack Nicholson, Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle Pfeiffer, among others. And so, um, uh, we decided to watch this movie. And, you know, I don't know what exactly I was expecting from this movie, um, which is Jack Nicholson. It delivered on both of those fronts, sort of. But, um... Wow, what a trip. Um, It also has the guy who plays the giant in Twin Peaks, which is great. I would just like to say that this movie um, could have... It it gives, like, major, like, hocus-pocus lesbian energy. You have these three witches who are like, Ah, all the men in this town, they're terrible. And it starts out, and um, Susan Sarandon is, um, it starts out on the day that Susan Sarandon's divorce is, um, finalized and the three women are celebrating because now all three of them are finally single. Um, and they're like, ah, men, you know, blah, blah, blah. Can't, uh, can't deal with them, but damn, wouldn't it be nice to have a good one? And so they're sitting here and they're talking about this ideal man that they would love to have. Um, stroll into their town and then the next day who strolls in and buys a large historic manor um, in their town but none other than 
um, uh, a mysterious guy um, named uh, Daryl, who is played by um, Jack Nicholson. And so Jack Nicholson starts by trying to seduce Cher very poorly, I might add. And um, when uh, she, she asks him, um, she, he does this by basically just taking her to his bedroom and lying down on the bed in his robe and uh, patting the bed. And Cher says, who are you? And he says... I'm just your average horny little devil. And I was like, wow, this movie's crazy. And so he, one by one, seduces these women somehow. And then they're all, in like, having orgies together, the four of them. And um, it becomes very clear that something very strange is happening because there's this one woman in the town who's sort of like a uh, Puritan, and she's sort of acting like she's possessed or something, and she's talking about evil, evil, and she's bursting out in church like, ah, there's a curse, and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, ah, it's because the witches are having orgies with Jack Nicholson in the giant historic manor. <laughs> and, um, and it's... You start to get the feeling that perhaps Jack Nicholson is the actual devil, and um, it's. I I don't find that hard to believe. Y yeah, no. It, you start to get this feeling, and um, you know, I really, <laughs> I really don't know how to explain the way that this movie ends, um, other than to say that the ending was one of the most surprising and exciting endings of a movie that I have seen in a long time. And, uh, well, um, long live these queens, long live this king. Um, this was a crazy-ass movie, and I just have to say like George Miller wherever you are king you are a king and I will love his movies forever um it's also um also checked out that it was adapted from a John Updike novel and honestly the John Updike novel sounds even crazier than the movie but um Anyway, would recommend. It's totally wild. Nice. I think he's. I think he's. He's there making a new Mad Max movie. I think that's what George Miller's doing right now. So there's a first. Well, they're doing that, but there's a movie with like Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba that he's doing before then, because COVID has held up a large production like Mad Max. So they're doing like a more intimate conversation driven movie with Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. It's a very sexy movie and also quite hilarious. That's my cell. Go watch The Witches of Eastwick. Nice. It looks like it's on uh, HBO Max if you have that. So there you go. Um, 
All right, I'm going to go next. Uh, I've been on a Tony Scott kick um, because this is an undisputed Hell fact yeah. that Tony Scott Scott rules. rocks. Um, rest in peace also. Just, like, just rest, well, and, and rest not only in that, but peace. he's the, Very sad. Yeah, rest in peace. But seriously, because honestly, also the best Scott. Yeah, like no. Ridley can fuck off. Tony Scott's way better. So... Um, but I got on a, on a Tony one because I absolutely adore his last film, Unstoppable, which is fantastic. Um, but then also because I saw that a bunch of his movies are on streaming platforms that I have. So I also decided to go, you know, that's why. Um, the first one I watched, which is on HBO Max, is Enemy of the State, which uh, came out in 1998. Uh, it stars Will Smith and Gene Hackman and John Voight. Um, and Regina King and uh, in this one you see the John Voight character is the uh, head of the NSA and there's I forgot what the the nature of the bill they're trying to pass something about like <laughs> surveilling people but he's trying something along those lines and uh, he's you know trying to get this 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 bill passed through and is trying to convince this congressman to to uh, vote you know, in favor of the bill, and the congressman's like, no, I just want to walk my dog, um, which, you know, fair, and so, uh, uh, Barry Pepper, which, you know, side note, Barry Pepper, great, why don't we see Barry Pepper and stuff anymore, he's fantastic, um, but John Voight has the congressman killed, but, of course, because we're, we're living in a surveillance state, and everything's being recorded, uh, they find out that there was somebody recording, like <laughs> some like nature photographer was recording like the ducks on the pond and caught the whole murder on tape. So then you have like this long sequence where uh, Jason Lee of My Name Is Earl fame is chased by NSA agents until he runs into old friend which i i can't imagine them being friends but old friend allegedly will smith who is this like big time criminal lawyer in washington dc who is at this point at like a lingerie shop and you have like this whole kind of sequence where he's uh like somewhat uncomfortable to go into this it's like a lingerie shop that also is doubling as like a sex toy shop which you know i, I you know strong combo there and so he runs into will smith and like does like a handoff of the tape without will smith knowing and then runs in the street and gets hit by like a, a fire truck or something and dies and so john voight and the nsa think that's the end of the line but then they see that he does not have tape on him and that he would actually ran into will smith because again surveillance state um, and so then Will Smith is on the run and he tracks down Gene Hackman, who's this, this random contact that he has. And pretty much Gene Hackman is, is doing his, like, he's doing like, it's like this movie is the conversation, but in 1988 and produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, which honestly is a combo that I loved. Um, and so then they have to like, you know, clear his name and get rid of John Voight and all that stuff. I, I mean, I kind of wanted to watch this just because one, it was interesting that you have like a, a, a blockbuster movie, like all about, um, surveillance. And this is Mm -hmm. a pre nine 11 movie, which 
if you watch this movie, it does not feel like a pre nine eleven movie. Like yeah. it feels super yeah, patriot act. Yeah, like it, it's it seems like super ahead of its time because it really just does. Like you know, I mentioned the conversation because it really is like on the level of that movie, but with this Jerry Bruckheimer produced kind of facade to it. And because it, it really does have like this incredibly sharp, interesting commentary on just and like the, the creative ways that it weaves all this. This is how people are watching us. I mean, you have like the government that has uh, they have like this, you know, it's it, it's it's a blockbuster movie. So it's absurd to an extent, but it's also like this this uh, the satellite that they like ping Jack Black pings the satellite and then they're just able to like tap into anything with like a camera. Um, and it, there's like there's this level of blockbuster absurdity to it, but you like, you can also tell that like the paranoia and just the, um, kind of, uh, overpowering, like power that it has like all of those kind of abstract ideas on the outside tony scott is really like in you know in the weeds on like he really understands those more he kind of understands that the the mechanisms that he's telling the story with are kind of silly and going to be dated but like the heavy ideas the themes everything behind it uh are really sound and strong and so I like this one a lot. My my only weak side is that I think like this is Will Smith kind of trying to be like a movie star, which is fine. Um, but especially after watching a lot of other Tony Scott movies that have Denzel, like this just seems like a movie that Denzel should have been in. But um, I saw that it was that it was down to Will Smith, Tom Cruise, which I could kind of see, and Mel Gibson. So I'm glad it was Will Smith. Um, but yeah, Nathan, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, uh, you know, I echo a lot of you, what you said, it's incredibly prescient, you know, it has those real echoes of conspiracy thrillers. I mean, you mentioned the conversation, but it also reminds me a lot, um, especially in that opening with the accidental, like nature photography (laughs) incident, like it reminds me a lot of blow up and blow out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, but obviously like in that super, super like nineties action, uh, very explosive package. And so you're starting to see the kind of like the development a little bit of Tony Scott's quote unquote late style, which is, you know, this like hyper digital, very jagged, chaotic editing, like a very impressionistic saturated colors. You see some of that as like most noticeably maybe in like the opening credits, uh, which is all this like surveillance footage and stuff. But it still very much has the flavor of like a 90s Bruckheimer movie. Like you said, you know, it's very much still of a piece with like, you know, Michael Bay's The Rock or um, Con Air, you know, those those kind of Bruckheimer big touchstone pictures spectacles. So it's it's a little bit, I think. You know, it's like Tony Scott kind of trying to figure out where he wants to go a little bit. And it sort of sets the stage, I think, for the next stage, the next part of his career, both in like those very paranoid surveillance themes and also in the kind of look that it's starting to go for. Um, This is a weird comparison, but it almost reminds me a little bit of how like in Lost Highway, David Lynch has like a videotape in the plot and is starting to kind of use video footage and camcorders and you feel that interest growing. But it's 
still a like quote unquote sort of normal film. And then with Inland Empire, he goes like fully digital, um, just this totally new kind of image. And I feel like that's the sort of jump that like Tony Scott makes between this movie and then his even later stuff, you know, Deja Vu, Unstoppable, Taking of Pelham 123. Those movies are like even more more digital um, yeah yeah and kind of more hyper stylized yeah absolutely well I, I, the next one i want to talk about was deja vu which kind of I, I paired these two to talk about just because i think there is kind of this kinship of um you know kind of behind your back looking behind your back surveillance uh and, and deja vu takes it up like a whole nother notch with like the sci-fi element to it um but that one, so this one comes out in 2006, which is, um, this is another one, like, it comes out in 2006, it's set in New Orleans, and it came out, like, pretty close to after Hurricane Katrina, um, and so this one, you get Denzel back, uh, you have this giant, uh, ferry explosion in New Orleans where, that kills, you know, all these people on this ferry, and so... Denzel plays this this federal agent who's um, you know tasked with kind of breaking down the scene, figuring out what happened. But because he's a local guy and kind of you know he's also Denzel Washington in the movie, um, he's approached by this this top secret government organization that is headed by Val Kilmer. Which has this, and this is when it gets you know just absurd. But it had they have like this time traveling surveillance device that like provides them a window of time that they can look at, and so they're getting Denzel to help them because he's gonna get them as much information as they can before because the the machine for whatever reason works like it, it like it's in cycles, and so it's not to the point when the fairy. Uh, explosion's gonna happen so they're trying they get Denzel to get all the information before it gets to that part so then they can figure out who did it um which I'll be honest like I did not understand half of what <laughs> the science of this movie was it was so confusing I didn't care but it was it was incredibly confusing um but so that, so pretty much they're using this like time travel device and there, there also is this this character, a, a dead woman played by uh, who's who's late played in these these visions or these memories or whatever, played by Paula Patton, who uh, like Denzel just like straight up is well one it's Paula Patton so she's super attractive and so he just falls in love with her immediately. Like you have this whole sequence where Tony Scott's doing like the the, the like the the. the camera like go, going around the room and it's just Denzel looking at this memory of Paula Patton like a day and a half before the explosion when she dies which honestly is is super interesting like like it, um I was reading reviews of this movie and they were talking about how it's just this like digital vertigo where you know Denzel's the J- the Jimmy Stewart character which I found to be super interesting um and I kind of want to dig more into that but this one I think kind of to your point before takes like the, the themes and the ideas of just survey the, the surveilling government and, and it's still, it still doesn't like have the, the background of like the more 
privatized tech that we have like today, which is which is really upset. I'm upsetting that Tony Scott's still not here because I would have loved to see him like bring like an Amazon or an Apple into like his movies. Um, but it's but it does understand like this this surveilling government idea, and it t- and it just kind of ramps up the themes of Enemy of the State. And so you have like them, them trying to solve this crime plus this time traveling element plus you know Denzel's affection for the Paula Patton character um, that like culminates in Denzel literally traveling back in time through this time machine. Um, I don't know this one. It might be the best of the late Tony Scott. It's definitely my second favorite behind Unstoppable. Um, Nathan, what what are your feelings on Deja Vu? I mean, it's been a few years since I've seen it, but it uh, may actually be my favorite. I don't know. It's just like... So, I don't know. There's just, like, such a convergence, I feel like, in kind of the themes of the movie and the the look and style and form and also in this, like, kind of romance with this past ghost, basically. Yeah. You know, there's, like, the astonishing uh, car chase where he's... where Denzel is chasing a car in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, he's yeah. like, has this, like, time machine view screen basically and he's trying to like you know follow this car and like get to where it was going and um and so the the chase is both unfolding in the past because he can see the car driving in the past and so he's trying to follow where it was going but obviously reality is different from the past footage so he's like running into obstacles or running into cars that like weren't there and he's kind of distracted so in some ways it's about i think almost like the delay of digital technology and how it mm-hmm. gives us this sort of feeling of, of a present that's just like constant and, and always existing and, and like makes us feel like we're so in touch, but there is a delay. And, and sometimes because of that distraction, we aren't actually engaged with the present, even though we feel like we are. Um, so I feel like in that kind of vertigo story by applying that on this kind of like weird linear, um, trajectory as opposed to something like purely visual like in vertigo it's about like linear voyeurism i don't know it's very weird or temporal uh, voyeurism i guess it's it's strange but um i find it a deeply romantic and like very emotional movie um in addition to just being like digitally you know i just i'm i'm you know as longtime listeners of the podcast know i'm kind of a sucker for this sort of digital stuff so i i just love that there is this sort of perfect convergence in of form and and content <laughs> well yeah and it's also taking place you know because of the fact that it comes you know the movie came out like so it's it's based in new orleans and came out so close to katrina like and you have kind of just this this tragedy and this uh complete like tectonic shift of this place like there's something almost like romantic in its setting like this was something i was thinking about with with unstoppable because one of the things i love about that movie and a lot of these late Tony Scott movies is like, um, it's, you have these, these characters, I mean, this, uh, you have these characters who, on, on like these big settings where every character in these movies is like working class, 
basic Joe. Um, that's that's kind of like the crux of Unstoppable. This one, I mean, Denzel's character is very much in, in that vein. Um, it's even more so in something like The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. And there's something really... I, and I think that this is kind of part of the like large-scale blockbuster appeal of these movies, at least to me, is that... You know, it's not it's not, you know, based and you you kind of have these these breaks of reality. I mean, we're talking about the time travel device and deja vu, but there is like this this kind of infrastructure of um, relatability, relatability just because you have these characters who they're not, you know, they're not superheroes. They don't have like incredible powers. They don't you know, there's not that element to it. It's just like people it's just people who need like have to do their job in order to save these people these other folks and there's like this reverence for other people that is so um endearing about all of these movies like that's especially in like taking of pelham one two three like just the the care and attention to just like the like people in that um I don't think that there's like a director working on like a large scale that's able to uh to capture that much you know, more, more, um, you know, just such in such a smart way as, as Tony Scott was. Definitely. It's a real, I don't know. It's really sad because like these, the kind of prescient themes and stuff that he's dealing with and the way that he interacts with technology is something that is obviously still so applicable. I mean, you were mentioning like, you know, deja vu doesn't really touch on like private tech and surveillance and stuff, which has just become more of a dominant force in American life, especially as we've seen over the past couple of weeks. And like, you know, it's just a real tragedy that we lost him. Um, because I feel like he would be, he would have even more to say um, and make movies that are even more relevant, especially, you know, both having these sort of movies grounded in a working class identity you don't often see in Hollywood, like you were saying, but also just like the way he uses technology is unlike anybody else. The way he addresses technology is like anybody, unlike anybody else. And um, I mean, I don't know, maybe he couldn't really fully exist in, in the kind of the way the film industry has turned out because he, he was for the most part making movies that are like by the standards of today, sort of mid tier (laughs) movies. Um, So I don't know what would have happened with his career really, but it's just it just it makes me fucking so sad every time I think about it. Yeah, I can't really. Im- he was one of the best. I can't. I can't imagine him like doing you know doing uh like a Marvel movie or something like just kind of, even if you know not like even taking like a franchise, but them just kind of going, hey, do you want to do this Captain America movie or something? Like I couldn't see him really doing that. I mean, I would like to see a Tony Scott, you know. <laughs> like version of that but i just don't see with the way that like he he just especially on a they always you know with 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 block whenever they add like a director to one of these these modern blockbusters they always talk about like their vision like patty jenkins has this vision for wonder woman ryan coogler has this vision for black panther james gunn has this vision for guardians of the galaxy but i i don't think uh a lot of those folks have I think that like to what Tony Scott displays on such a giant palette is like really like this true unique blockbuster vi- vision, and I'm just like, no, nah, you guys don't have that. 
I mean, the thing about Tony Scott that I think just you immediately know he's somebody different is that he motherfucker literally went to art school. You know, like how many Hollywood filmmakers come from art school, come from a visual arts background? It's just like, especially now, maybe like I think exceptionally rare for somebody to have that kind of mindset and training. So, you know, like you were saying, whenever there's like a new talent that gets roped into the, the blockbuster superhero machine, they always say that, like what you were saying about their vision, but it's always like the narrative vision or like the character vision or, yeah. you know, they're going to make this a really rich, good story. Um, whereas Tony Scott had true, I think, like technical, formal, artistic vision. You know, he had a really distinctive way that he made movies and wanted his movies to look. And it's a style that overlaps a lot and influenced a lot of other Hollywood action around the same time. You know, you see similarities to some other movies, but really nobody did it like him. And um, yeah, I, you know, there's such a unified aesthetic to like Marvel movies, especially. But I mean, also D all the DC movies basically mimic this kind of mm -hmm. Zack Snyder style book now. And he, I don't think you could really constrain him. I don't really think you could get him into that mold of like you're gonna make a movie like a television director and aesthetically do what everyone else is doing um he's just i don't think that is why he made movies at all yeah um ridley scott i think could fit into that um because that man is kind of a hack you know but i think i think tony scott would would rather like sell you know, you know he would sell a movie to netflix before i think he would like make a marvel yeah. movie honestly no, I could see him kind of doing like if if Netflix or somebody gave him a check, you I could see him doing something there. Um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, but yeah, the last thing I'll say because I after watching Deja Vu, it, it reminded me about the uh, when did it get was it 2014 or 2011? Yeah, 2011 film Source Code by Duncan Jones, and that's a perfect example. Oh, yeah. I I remember really liking that movie when it came out. Um, and I still liked it when I rewatched it uh, for the first time in a long time the other day. But like after watching Deja Vu and Enemy of the State and then thinking about it like up next to taking a Pelham 123 or Spy Game, it's not a bad movie, but there's just like the way that something like Pelham 123 moves, like just the it moves from beat to beat and scene to scene and, and like conversation to conversation. Like it's just they're, to, they're it's night and day. It's it's just incredible like how Scott's movies just move around. Um so I would recommend the two I talked about. Um, I've, I've really, uh, I was kind of like mixed on Pelham One Two Three, but I've been thinking a lot about it um, after I watched it. And then I would also recommend if, if this is, you know, jog some interest, uh, Spy Game with uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt, which is also like a movie dealing with like kind of memory, um, and then it, it takes place like in. It's the F CIA, so it also kind of has like this early like, uh, eh, probably like like late. It, it's it is pretty much this like movie that's transitioning from like what we view as like American intelligence and like you know Vietnam, like Vietnam, Korea, like that air you know era mm -hmm. of, of stuff. Era. Yeah, that kind of Cold War. Uh, uh, surveillance and spy into like the more like Afghanistan, Gulf War, Iraq War, 
Like it's like this kind of merger between the two with like Brad Pitt being the the more modern side and Robert Redford being this kind of classic character that I found to be super interesting as well. So would high recommend all those. Uh, Nathan, I'm gonna let you take us home though. You had a movie you want to talk about. Yeah, um, you know, it's not entirely dissimilar from the kind of vibe we've been on talking about Tony Scott and that just sort of era of Hollywood action, which just like for whatever reason, a couple weeks ago, I just really started getting on this kind of kick of like, I, I mean, sort of a broad number of vibes, but really just like Hollywood action from kind of the 80s up until like early 2000s. You know, that's just such a like big era of multiplex spectacle. Um, and you have a lot of high watermark of action filmmaking of that era and, you know, a lot of crap too. But um, it's just kind of fascinating to go through. I mean, I think that's like the era where it's really like capital A action as a genre. And now I think other than like direct-to-video action for the most part action has been sort of absorbed into like multiple genres you know superhero movies aren't solely strictly action movies in the way like a rambo movie is or something like that um so i've been more on that kind of hard hard action tip i guess and a movie that i watched um which is sort of at the end of this period I'm talking about, uh, is Joseph Kahn's Torque from 2004. Um, Joseph Kahn, you might know him as a director, sort of cult movies like uh, Detention and the battle rap movie Bodied, which was produced by Eminem and which I saw in theaters and really did not care for very much. It was very, like, edgelord, like, oh, PC culture kind of movie, um, which Joseph Kahn seems like that's kind of, he has that a little bit of that sort of edgelord mentality. He's very on Twitter. Um, but even if you aren't familiar with his movies, you are probably familiar with him and his work because he is a massively successful music video director. Um, most notably, he's sort of the go-to guy for uh, Taylor Swift's videos um, over the sort of like recent to later part of her career, you know, the sort of like pop era Taylor Swift. Um, but he's, you know, he's, he's really been a pop music video guy for years, you know, Britney Spears, Nelly, Ashley Simpson, uh, you know, 50 Cent, Lady Gaga. I'm just looking at his credits and, you know, it's ni 90s, 2000s pop. Just you can just rattle them off basically a lot in a lot of rap videos, too. Um, so his movies are very much like even though they're maybe not hugely successful and maybe sometimes especially Detention Embodied were sort of intentionally marketed more towards a kind of cult lower budget midnight movie crowd. Um, you know, he he is a very, you know, MTV music video kind of filmmaker. He's got a lot of flourish and panache and tricks up his sleeve. Um, so Torque uh, was his first movie um, and you can kind of tell that it was intended to be a much bigger movie than it actually ended up being. Um, it is sort of a Fast and Furious knockoff basically, but with motorbikes and ice cube instead of cars and Vin Diesel um, and in fact, it sort of opens actually as a kind of Fast and Furious diss track because the main character, Carrie Ford, who is played by Martin Henderson and who wears this ridiculous biker jacket, like more like dirt bike than like chopper motorcycle leather um, that says Carpe Diem on the front. And there's some amazing shots of like explosions behind him while you see this jacket that says Carpe Diem. And it's just like beautiful.
beautiful images, just like a fucking Renaissance painting. Um, so at the beginning of the movie, he's like racing these like muscle car street racer guys and, and he beats them and then they're like all pull over and they get out and they're like hassling him. They're these just like meathead muscle bound bros. And he's like, why are car dudes such assholes? And then he kicks their butts um and it feels very like bikes rule cars drool and it feels kind of like oh this is a fast and furious type movie well middle finger to fast and furious um and in fact a lot of ways there are actually even though i love the fast and furious movies uh as i've made known many times on this podcast before there are certain things that i like about this movie more than um a lot of the fast and furious movies. Um, I could not really tell you the plot at all. Like Martin Henderson is in some feud with another biker, the leader of like an all black biker gang played by ice cube. Uh, and like there's, they're feuding and there's some murder, but they didn't do the murder and then they're friends and then they're working together. And then they're, you know, the, I don't know, whatever, just some action movie shit happens. Um, but it's just like constantly like every image um, to quote the name of a popular YouTube series. Every frame is a painting you could say about torque. I think um, you've got some of that like very candy painted kinetic sort of energy that you have in the in the first three Fast and Furious movies, that very early 2000s colorful aesthetic. But it goes even beyond that. There's just like some crazy like accelerated sp- fast motion like cgi kind of playstation 2 almost like cgi graphics you've got almost like wong car y like stuttering um hand cranked sort of effects and and shit um and there are even some like just the all of the races in this movie are such insane action sequences like there's some scenes that even feel like they're in a wuxia movie or something like there's the scene where like the main dude and ice cube are like racing through this forest of palm trees and they're like all the wind is whipping by them and you can visually like see literally see the wind you can see the trees like the leaves going everywhere they're like trying to shoot at each other they're trying to throw their guns at each other and it just feels like this like mythical battle between two warriors on bikes and then literally like later in the movie these two the like two like the head uh, chicks in each gang like duel with each other on their bikes and they literally do like kung fu with their bikes and are like fighting with their bikes um so you just have all these insane set pieces all of these crazy in camera and special effects a lot of bold colors a lot of crazy costumes and explosions a lot of very choice like 2000s sort of uh radio rock and um uh rap southern rap kind of crunk needle drops it literally ends with nickelback and then immediately goes into a young bloods song which is just like the two genders of early 2000s pop music i think um so it's just a very it's just a it's just a pop confectionery of a movie um i had an incredible time watching it it's just a delight to behold um even though i had no idea what the fuck was going on most of the time and i always enjoy ice cube as a screen presence he's always fun to watch mean mug um so Torque is on HBO Max with all those Tony Scott movies. Honestly, judging and Witches of Eastwick. So honestly, like, it seems like get yourself HBO Max for the weekend and just have a fun time. 
they've got honestly a pretty good selection they like they have they've got a lot of older stuff on there and it's just always very funny like going to the comedy section and seeing like cleo from five to seven <laughs> next to like you know martin shorts clifford or something like it's just it's wacky but they've got a lot of great stuff no, on there I, my favorite part of uh of hbo max is that they don't use like the proper like header photo of or cover of a movie it's like the bargain bin version it's wonderful oh yeah yes they do do that (laughs) um all right we're gonna take a short break and then we'll be back talking pusher two after this Hello, Cinematary. This is Zach, your host, and I'm going to use this midpoint in this week's episode to let you know a little bit about what's happening on both the website and the podcast. So first off, uh, I know for a very long time we asked you not to give us any money. Well, things have changed. (laughs) We want that money. I'm just kidding. We just want like $5 a month for the rest of your life. But we're doing a Patreon, and I promise this is all in good fun. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cinematary. I'm sure you've heard us mention it at the end of the episode. We are doing this in order to pay for our writing that is happening on the website. We have a wonderful breadth of writers who are all giving a lot of time and effort to come up with reviews and share their thoughts on the website, and so we wanted to just give back to them in that way. And so that is why we created our Patreon page. So again, for $5 a month, you can get exclusive content from the staff. Uh, right now, we have our hit series film theory and chill which takes a piece of film theory each month and then deconstructs it uh, in a way that makes it a little bit more accessible and then we end that episode usually with just us rambling about whatever is on our mind at that period of time it's uh it's it's for some people i guess <laughs> but uh you can find that on patreon.com slash please consider you know making that note donation each month just to uh help the help show these writers your appreciation for what they do Another easy way to kind of keep up with what's happening on Cinematary is signing up for our free newsletter. So if you missed an episode, if you weren't paying attention to social media and you missed maybe a review or something or a video essay or something that we posted, this is an easy way to keep up with all of that. So each Sunday we send out a note. It goes straight to your inbox. It gives you the latest podcast episodes, you know, what's happening on the Patreon page and the last two reviews that are on Cinematary.com. This is a great way to keep up with what's happening and it's a nice way if you forget to go, oh, hey, I'm not, you know, just chilling out on a Sunday. I'm having some coffee doing Sunday things. Here, I'm going to check out what uh, what Andrew wrote about something or what uh, Nathan wrote about something. Just, you know, we got we got that stuff going. So uh, you can find that on the website, cinematary.com. You can sign up for the newsletter. Again, it's free. And finally, the easiest way to support this show is to go on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a rating and review. You know, this is just how the algorithms work. I know every show asks you to do this, but it, honestly, if, if you could take, a, you know, 30 seconds to a minute and do this, it would greatly, you know, help us. I mean, this helps us just as much as, you know, signing up for the Patreon uh, or letting people know on social media that you listen to Cinematary and you enjoy it. Uh, all of that stuff is, is very helpful, so give us a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and, you know, share it on social media. Let people know that Cinematary is around. So again, uh, consider donating to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Cinematary. Sign up for the free newsletter and then give us a rating and review on your podcaster app. Well, that is way too much of me talking. You're about to hear more of me talking, so I apologize in advance, but thank you for listening and let's get back to the show.
And we're back with part two of episode 334 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our Mass Mickelson, the series with 2004's Pusher 2 with blood on my hands. Uh, before we get into it, though, our, our confessions, Mad, uh, Mass Mickelson confessions at Confessions Maz at, on Twitter. This is number 159. When. W-E-N. When I poop, I think of Mad Milkelson. Milkelson. So, when I poop, I think of Mad Milkelson. Yeah. That seems on on, like a a vibe of this movie. Good for that. Pusher 2 is uh, written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn of uh, Drive and Only God Forgives fame. Uh, the film stars Mads Mikkelsen, Leif Sylvester, and Zlatko Burek. And tr- the synopsis is Trouble follows an ex-convict, played by Mads Mikkelsen, as he tries to gain his father's favor. Uh, 1995, at age 24, Refn, against much advice, especially from his dr- director-editor father, Anders Refn, decided to drop the Danish film school in favor of filming Pusher which was launched at the Venice International Film Festival and was a success both in Denmark and abroad uh, and kind of cued in people on a lot of what Danish cinema was at that point. Uh, On making the series, Refn said, quote, Pusher was originally intended to become a trilogy, but it took eight years and a bankruptcy before I found out how to move on from number one. Pusher was about a man who owed money, not a particularly original plot. I realized later that people remember the characters better than they remembered the story. So for numbers two and three, I simply chose other characters but kept them in the same universe and the same style. He continued, The trilogy is made from stories of destinies about good and bad destinies, mostly bad, unfortunately. Whenever I meet a destiny, I see a film, and I have many waiting to be realized. In fact, Pusher 2 is better than the original. It deals more with human feelings. The series deals with people in the underworld of crime, not about crime itself. Shakespeare wrote about royal families, which are essentially confronting the same moral dilemmas that you find among gangsters, and they both have their own rules. Each film depicts one person, the eye, and his experiences, and clearly shows that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Refn initially didn't want to return for a second film, telling Reverse Shot, quote, Oh, I hated the idea. I despised it, but that's because I was afraid. Having to go back, what if I couldn't do it? What if I couldn't make a better movie? I mean, could you imagine anything more terrible than going back and realizing that you burned yourself out? 2006, the LA Times said in Refn's skilled street realist hands, the child becomes a potent wailing metaphor for Tony's own dilemma of rudderless need. In 2005, Variety said second in his trio of films focusing on the, on the drug trade for the Pushers POV, from the Pushers POV. With Blood on My Hands, Pusher 2 reprises the stylist intensity of director Nicholas Winding Refn's 1996 debut and sticks close to its successful formula of gritty, realistic violence and fast-paced rhythm. After ex- after his excursion into surreal psychology with the more personal project Fear X, Winding Refn's return to genre affair should score big at home and traffic its way to markets that went for the original. On that note, let's talk a little bit about Pusher 2. Uh, Ash, I'm going to kick it off with you because you were you you presented this movie on Cinematary in Part 1 a couple months ago and referred to it as better than The Godfather. Um, hmm. And so... If you would like to uh, to bring that back up again and expand on that, I think mm. I think listeners would enjoy it. 
Yeah. Um, I think that like, um, the thing about, um, this movie is, and, and I guess the whole trilogy, the pusher trilogy in general, but this is, um, my favorite. Um, I think that like each movie in the pusher trilogy just sort of shows like the specific protagonists, um, sort of, um, descent, um, I guess from like just a regular person in the, um, in sort of like a crime, um, community and sort of their descent into just like complete and utter, um, failure and despair. And, um, uh, so, but this particular one is interesting and, uh, to the point about the Godfather, that's sort of, um, I mean, what the Godfather series is about as well. Um, I mean, the first Godfather movie is about like, oh, you got the good, you know, Marine son. And by the end, he's, you know, destroyed his father's wishes by, you know, becoming a crime lord or whatever. But um, this one you start out, I think it's sort of a um, (laughs) such a tragic movie because you start out and you have this guy, um, Mads Mikkelsen's character's name is um, Tani, and he is um, a really tragic figure. Um, he has the word respect tattooed on the back of his head, which is, which is so ironic because it's like the one thing he does not have. He gets respect from nobody. This entire movie, no respect for Tony. Um, and so, um, we start out, we meet him in prison, um, where he's sort of getting this pep talk from his cellmate, who's this big guy and his, um, cellmate saying to him, you know, you just have to like, um, uh, like make your moment. You have to reach out and you have to make your name. Um, and he tells a story of someone he knew who, you know, um, just like, uh, um, sort of made a name for himself. And, uh, um, and so Mass Mickelson is like, okay. And at this point, um, if you've only seen this movie, this is the first time you're seeing him. So you don't really know anything about him. And, um, and if you've seen the first one, he's only in half of the first one, so really you've just seen him, you know, goofing around in that movie um, and sort of being a screw-up. And you find out really quickly once he's released from prison that he's a screw-up, that he has no uh, love or respect from his father, and his father's basically disowned him for his new younger son from a different um, mother and... um, he's just trying to make a name for himself this entire, um, movie and constantly, constantly just making every situation that he's in worse, basically, and making the wrong decision the whole time. And, um, and it's sort of, it's like almost endearing how, how stupid Tony is. And, um, 
till like the final moments of the movie where he has like where he like makes his moment and I guess that was the point for me where it was like okay um like do I think this movie is like like um like technically better than the godfather like probably not but like um like just you know having that feeling of um you know in the godfather you get this great feeling or you get a terrible feeling when you watch the godfather because you think no like michael corleone has made a decision that's like terrible he's gone from good to bad and tawny has gone from nothing to something in this movie, even though it's bad to bad and no respect to no respect, probably he's still, um, made a decision that, um, I mean, it's probably going to end up bad for him, but you still like, you see him doing that and thinking, and you think like, Oh, he's just following, um, the advice of, uh, his cellmate in the beginning and sort of trying to make his moment. And I, I just sort of read the movie as a big tragedy in that way. Um, and, and that was really effective for me, I guess, was just sort of, um, it, it was really tragic because like, even though like, um, like Tony's really stupid and like does stupid things, like for some reason, I just like can't help but sympathize with him. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that, I think that's why I, uh, like the movie so much. Yeah. Nathan, what, did, what, what did, would you make of Pusher? I guess you saw Pusher 1 and 2. Yeah, I watched both of them, even though, you know, this is the Mads Mikkelsen series and he's only a side character in that, like Ash was saying, but I'm just sort of a completionist and, and stuff and wanted to maybe have the context from the first movie. And it's interesting because, to be honest, I didn't really care for the first movie that much. Um, it's, you know, he is, Mads is sort of the sidekick character in that um but you already feel like i think more drawn to him than the main guy who looks like a danish tom sizemore um just both because mads is like this you know in the movie he's given a very compelling look you know the bald head the respect tattoo on the bald head and this like red track suit you know he's like a very striking memorable figure um but he's also just sort of has this kind of anarchic spirit uh and and seems to you know get into a lot of shit um so it's it's like you know i was kind of watching the first pusher and i was like i'm honestly more interested in that guy than in this sort of humdrum like glum criminal that the first one is mostly about um and i don't know i feel like these movies are sort of part of a kind of wave of like euro crime films that were happening in like the 90s and 2000s i mean like in the uk you had like or like you know i feel like more like drug crime films like not you know to varying degrees about like actual crime sometimes more about drugs than crime but like in the uk you had like guy you know guy pierce's movies and train spotting and um paul w sanderson's shopping and then you had uh luke basson's movies and the whole europa like action genre movie industry in france and um you had like 
I mean, even something like Run Lola Run from Germany, I think, kind of qualifies a little bit. And I feel like those movies were like all also like very much like intended for global audiences as much as at home audiences, you know, like just because I feel like genre crime thriller action type stuff tends to be easier to market in a language that speak in a country that speaks a different language than like other genres. Um, so I feel like these movies kind of carried over. And so it's sort of interesting in that way. Um, but the first one, I don't know. I'm like <laughs> mixed in a lot of ways on Refn. Like there are things that draw me to to his style, and then there are a lot of things that push me away. You know, he's like very nihilistic, and sometimes I don't always care for that. Um, and the first one, I feel like you can't really see a ton of his style yet. It's just this sort of like handheld, gritty crime movie that's fairly stripped down and kind of realist, you know, and it has some like driving rock music in certain scenes and it's got some moments of real uncomfortable violence and torture, which would sort of become a signature of his. Uh, but I feel like Pusher 2 is interesting because you see Refn, like the Refn that's really known now in kind Kind of like the, the sort of stereotype of his style, you know, very neon, um, very like hyper violent starts to emerge in this. You have some almost like John Carpenter soundtrack moments. Um, but I think it's also just really interesting with like the Mads in, in specific regard to the Mads performance, because he's revisiting this character like almost a decade after the first movie. So it's just kind of interesting, you know, just an interesting sort of study in aging, both like physically, but also I think, you know, Mads had just like developed more as a performer. So in like the first movie, he's he's both as an actor and as a character, this kind of younger guy who's like, yeah, swept up in, in this life and getting in trouble for crime and shit, but he's not really like in it, in it yet. And this movie, he's like, you know, been behind bars for a while and has kind of dealt with some shit and he's still kind of got this like joke joking energy a lot of the time. Um, but he's like hardened more. And I think you really kind of start to see that in Matt's performance. Um, but it's also just an interesting character, you know, because like to, to sort of use a Godfather illusion, you know, he's like the Danish Fredo a little bit. He's just this like perpetual criminal fail son who really wants to impress his father, but he, he can't, uh, he just can't crack it for most of the movie. And I mean, the same thing, even in his other relationships, you know, like as a father. Um, and I honestly, you know, I found the kind of like relationship between Matt and like his son um, kind of touching like you know at the end of the movie he really like becomes a father um, and that was I just didn't I didn't really expect the movie to kind of go to that almost like sweeter place um, just based on Refn's work and kind of the whole vibe of the movie I thought it you know he would probably like abandon his kid <laughs> um, or just you know like honestly for a second I thought he was gonna like kill his kid at one point or something and just be like oh my god <laughs> like, I don't know at, at the very like for a second when like they were like you know having that part and the baby was crying like you know oh, next yeah. to the pool table and he kind of leans down slowly. Also an insane scene yeah, like, and just, like the baby's in like a duffel bag. Yeah just everything about that scene the fact the baby was there and the fact that he was kind of just moving slowly I was like wait is he gonna like kill this baby or something and then I was like okay no 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 he's just like he's just like taking care of the baby he's just taking charge taking some responsibility. Also the fact 
that his like tiny brother is in there and there's just like strippers and yeah. they're like doing their thing. I'm like, there's like a nine year old here, but okay. Yeah. Well, I like that the wedding, you have the strippers come out at the reception of the wedding, which honestly, you know, is a strong move. Um, it's like a really interesting tradition. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, uh, kind of that Mads Mikkel, his performance, you know, he is kind of this dopey dummy. I think like the Fredo is a good analogy that Nathan made, but I think, I think you're right though, that there is something about his performance. That's very endearing. Um, it's kind of something similar to what we talked about, uh, uh last week where he just kind of has like this, um, innate personability to him. Uh, that it's still is strange to me that, you know, a lot of his stateside roles are like these evil villains, what, you know, in these blockbusters like Casino Royale and Doctor Strange and stuff, because he really does have like this likability to him. And that's kind of what endears you, at least for me, through this movie, because he's a dummy and he does a lot of stupid stuff throughout this movie that you should probably not like him for. But like at the end, like you're describing this kind of scene where he's abducting this baby um i don't know i was kind of on board with him but by that point i was like all right mads like let's see where we're gonna go are you gonna like take this baby like on the road like what's gonna happen um it's, i don't know it, like there's just something about the way that he uh presents himself on screen that immediately endears yourself to him yeah um i think it's like um i i don't know what it is but i guess it's just i don't know Part of it for me is just the, um, like, just the idea that, like, nobody, like, nobody likes this guy. Like, there's not a single person in this movie, except for maybe, like, Kurt the Cunt, who, who, like, likes being around this guy. Like, the one time, <laughs> like, the there's a, one tragic scene where they've all, they've just, he's been included and he's gone on this bus to like this heist to like steal the cars. And um, when they get done, he's like trying to ride home or ride back with all of them. And they're like, no, you can't ride in the trunk because that's illegal. You have to take the bus. And he, yeah, I, I kind of love that yeah, scene. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's like, I'll just ride in the trunk, and they're like, no, that's illegal. And they've just stolen a bunch of cars, and you're like, oh my god, they just don't want him there. And it's like so sad to me because, like, what is so bad about him? Like, like he's stupid, but he's not like mean or like I, I don't know just everyone thinks he's just like whatever and at the um wedding reception his dad just like publicly shames him and it's just like um you know I, I guess there's just sort of um just a, a lack of justice for Tony like um, I watch this movie and I'm like, you know, give this man, <laughs> I'm like, if you give, if you give this man a chance, will he screw it up? Probably. But like, at least he's here and like, he wants to try. 
Like, give him, like, find out what he's good at. Like, maybe he's just not found what he's good at yet. Like, I don't know. I guess just, like, um, uh, I just, like, really, um, Fredo is my favorite character in The Godfather. So this really, I think, I think Nathan's, um, uh, pinned him is sort of the Fredo character. And so I think I just really sympathize with, like, those dudes who just like can't get it right for some reason in this like world that's so cruel um yeah well it like just the the constant uh it's it's just it's it's very cringeworthy just the constant uh attempts at like affirmation from his dad like there's this one scene where he like walks up to the dad's office in the auto body shop and he's like sitting there talking to some other guy He's like, yeah. What do you want, Tony? And he's just like, no, I'm just, you know, coming up here to see what's going on, and just like chilling up there. And and it's kind of the same uh, as the scene you're describing, where they're just the the whole uh, the whole thing just kind of dissipates because they're just like, I uh, this fucking guy. Um, and that seems to be like just the mood of the movie. There's so much patheticness, you know, like, um, you know, literally like one of the first thing that happens after he gets out is like, you know, he goes to his dad's shop and one of the dudes is like pointing at like a nude calendar and it's like, Oh, you're going to get some of that. Like you getting any of that or whatever. And he's like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, I'm getting laid all the time or whatever. And then it like cuts to him, you know, with these two women, these two sex workers that he's, he's paid and, you know, he's in this sex hotel and he's like trying to jerk off to some porn on the TV to like get himself hard and he just like can't do it. And then he's like trying to tell the girls to do things to like try to get off. And at, you know, he's just like, they're like kind of making fun of him and stuff. And, so while he's like you know not able to perform just like totally flaccid he's also still being like oh you guys are like missing out like you know i'm I'm like the king of the cock or whatever um so you just like immediately <laughs> like you know you're just immersed in like this the kind of like how pathetic this dude's sort of life has been kind of to this point you just like immediately get a very real feel for that um and i don't know i think mads is interesting because he has you like you were saying zach this just sort of like affable quality to him but he also does have an edge which is why he's so suited to villain roles and so like you feel this kind of sympathy and, and pity and, and even like a warmth to him, even though there are times where it's kind of like what he's doing is totally horrifying. Like after, you know, at that, the wedding party when he like goes in and like tells his, tells the mother of his child to like take the baby home. And then he go like, you know, just like totally goes off and brutalizes her and stuff. And it's just this like, you know, you, you're kind of like, Oh, like I'm proud of him. Like, you know, he's stepping up, like he's being a dad. And then it's like, Oh, Whoa. Like, you know, this dude is still like, <laughs> you know, has some shit to work out. Um, so I'm, I just, Matt's plays that kind of character. Well, who's just complicated like that yeah well he also like you you feel pity for him because he's clearly as somebody who just doesn't like he just doesn't understand like he's never been educated in the in what he needs to be doing like he's like as as ash is talking about like he constantly is wanting to to like perform whatever tasks get him into 
this you know this this echelon that everybody else is at that he kind of wants to attain but like you have that conversation with the 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 mother where they're like on this bench and they're just kind of chatting and she's talking about how he or he's talking about how he's like sometimes he just doesn't remember stuff and she's like well you know when did that start and he's like oh i can't remember and like he's just kind of this this sad figure because you can tell it's not it's not all his fault. Like he just, like he was just kind of set up to lose. And that kind of makes like the character more interesting than, you know, a lot of those other kind of Euro crime movies, Nathan, that you were describing at the top. And even something that's more like in, in the U S level, something like boondock saints or um, (laughs) almost like a pulp fiction where there's something kind of supposed to be cool about those figures. Like the, like, like, you know, Boondock Saints, you have like the two main characters with like the big guns, like on the poster, and that's like there's like this kind of cool criminal element to it. And you know, to reference credit, this one kind of subverts that, and there's nothing really cool about his character, but he's like the central crime character, and that's to me that's kind of fascinating. It's so funny because he really does. I don't know. He does look like he he has this. <laughs> look about him you know that's just like so stylized and iconic that you expect he would be like the super kind of hyper masculine like poster boy of of a 90s kind of crime post tarantino crime movie but i you know you were mentioning the sort of you know the scene where he's like i can't remember how long like i've been forgetting things and in that scene it's literally suggested that you know he has like a brain injury or something you know he has some kind of like probably literal physical mental trauma um so there's just like that kind of complexity, which I think also like shades his his actions and behavior in a different light. Like this might be a dude who like legitimately like has some challenges that these like other uh, hustlers and pushers don't have. And so he's like got an extra set of hurdles that he's trying to overcome. Not to say that this is like a, some kind of like affirmative portrait of like a neurodivergent person. But I do feel like uh, <laughs> I don't know. He's he's just like clearly got a complicated brain going on and there's some stuff going on uh that's more than just like act trying to act tough yeah and uh actually i was listening to the um uh commentary track with um the director and it's actually super interesting the um the one part i I guess you guys were talking about how um like he seems like he would be sort of an iconic figure and this is just sort of like sort of an anti he's sort of like an anti icon i guess because he's just such a like disaster in most ways and um um it was really interesting to me like um uh Refn said that this um scene in the uh uh, brothel, um, when he's like, you know, like can't get hard or whatever. And, um, uh, it, that he was like, this scene is a, like basically the whole movie. Um, and he was talking about, um, you know, there's that scene when, um, uh, he and Kurt are going to meet Milo in like the hotel and he says, um, uh, or Nicholas Reffin says, um, 
like this is the one sort of like glimpse of glamour that we get in basically the entire film is we're in this nice hotel room and the first thing that happens is like uh kurt is like i have to go shit because like he's like um his uh nicholas reffin is like i'm not a drug user but this is what i hear like oh um it makes you have to go to the bathroom all the time It, it um you know gives you like erectile dysfunction it does this it does that and so he guess he was um just trying to rather than like use all of the um like uh um like using everything to like make icons out of the characters just sort of just like showing the ugly side of everything which I, I thought was interesting. Um, and, uh, and sort of like, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I just like, um, I, I thought it was interesting. Like, uh, like I, I think when I first set out to watch the Pusher movies, it, like I saw photos from it and I was like, oh, like, Matt's character has to be, like, this icon, you know, he's got these tattoos, and, like, Nathan was saying, like, he's got that look about him of, like, you know, the red tracksuit and the tattoos and this and that, and it's, like, you watch it, and it just tells such a different story, um, so it's super interesting, and, um, just one, like, interesting fact that I, um, had to share from the, uh, um, commentary was the, um, character Kurt the Cunt, um, who, uh, is in the movie. His, that is his real name in real life is Kurt the Cunt. (laughs) And the actor's, um, non-professional actor, he's actually a, um, Nicholas Ruffin said he was like an actual um, sort of notorious gangster from Copenhagen and um, at one point was wanted by Interpol. And um, Ruffin, so so this was sort of a sketchy thing that Ruffin said where I was like, man, what? So Ruffin like hosted as a like casting, as like a casting call hosted a narcotics anonymous meeting like in order to find uh like cast members for this movie um which i thought was kind of like shitty but um that's how yeah uh yeah (laughs) yeah but that's how he found kurt was at a was at this na meeting that he um arranged um to scout for uh characters um but uh man that dude is wild i thought he was an incredible character (laughs) can i just say about that scene this is you know unrelated really to like what's happening in the scene but that has to be the most poorly constructed like bathroom in a hotel room that i've ever seen like it oh, the like glass doors and windows. yeah it's it's like glass windows it's right next to the door so like they're walking in they're just like oh there's kurt taking a shit 
Um, yeah. Just terrible, ter- terrible room design. Yeah. Um, and not to mention just like the whole subplot with Kurt of like, oh, he gets Tony to shoot him. Um, <laughs> like just amazing. Um, I thought. He was my favorite. I really liked Kurt the Cunt. Um, any any final thoughts on Pusher 2 before we, we wrap up? Um, does anybody else feel like it's better than The Godfather? Justice for Tony. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but uh, I wouldn't say it's better, but I did quite... You know, I, I liked the performance and character, and uh, it was better than Pusher 1. That's good, because Ash was kind of worried. <laughs> yeah, I was like, if Nathan doesn't like this movie at all, I'm going to be upset. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it's it, it has its merits, for sure. I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, I know it does, but I'm glad you think so. Um... <laughs> uh... All right, well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, uh, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Christina Daughtry, Harry Eskin, Maggie, Ron Hayes, The Kittiest of Kittens, Titus Arthur, Tyler Chandler, and Whitney Rio Ross. Thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we're going to be continuing our Mads Mikkelsen series with 2012's The Hunt, which I'd, I'd figure is probably one of the more, outside of his like American roles, is probably his most well-known um, Danish movie, would, would you say, Ash? I'd say so. Um, yeah. It won some big awards and such. Yeah, I think that's the one that I know a lot of people like are familiar with him from. So, so yeah, we'll have that next week. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you then. Bye.